Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we get started, I want to welcome Audio-Technica as presenting partner for this season of Let's Talk About Sects. I've been working with their equipment from the very beginning of the show, and like many podcasters, started out with an AT2020 USB mic, which has served me very well. The kind folks at Audio-Technica upgraded me to a BP-40, which they tell me is also perfect for screaming into if you're in a heavy metal band. If you're not a podcaster, they have some really great options like noise-cancelling headphones for travel, some cool wireless headphones, or if you love to listen to vinyl like I do, they've got very nice turntables as well. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. Children of God, later known as the family, became notorious for their practice called flirty fishing. They believed in bringing up their children to have no inhibitions around sex, but the ramifications of their approach to this would echo through the generations as trauma and result in a shocking murder-suicide committed by the very son prophesied as the prince who would lead them through the end times. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also deals with incest and physical and sexual abuse, including of minors. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. David Brandt Berg was born on the 18th of February 1919 in Oakland, California, to Yalma and Virginia Berg. He was the youngest of three children, with an older brother, Yalma Jr., and an older sister, Virginia, both his siblings named after their parents. It was a conservative Christian lineage, with a grandfather who had built and pastored 50 churches in America and one in Australia under the Disciples of Christ Campbell Movement, a restorationist approach looking to shift the world back to a more ancient version of Christianity. David's parents were involved with the Christian church as evangelists and pastors, until his mother Virginia shared her experiences of recovering from a debilitating back injury after accepting Christ into her life. The church didn't accept the notion of divine healing, and Yalma and Virginia were expelled. They continued to pastor with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and then independently. Virginia was a strong woman who led a matriarchal family and doted on her son, treating him as though he could do no wrong. According to a book by David's daughter Deborah, he was never brought under authority nor taught the strength of character to admit a wrong, accept guilt, ask forgiveness and go on strengthened through the humility of telling the truth. It may well be that this was modelled for him by his mother, 
as Deborah later found out that many of the stories she'd heard about her grandmother's debilitating back injury were completely untrue. Peter Wilkinson wrote for Rolling Stone that Virginia also viciously beat her son when she found out about her maid fondling him. After Virginia led a number of revivals at the Miami Gospel Tabernacle, the family moved to Miami, Florida in 1924, where Yalma and Virginia continued to pastor in various churches around the city. Following the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, David was drafted into the US Army in 1942, by which time he was in his early 20s. After finishing basic training, according to a biography on his own website, he was struck down with double pneumonia and a severely damaged heart. Apparently, whilst almost comatose, he promised God that he would dedicate his life to Christian service full-time if he could be healed and then immediately experienced a miraculous recovery. He was discharged from the army due to his enlarged and leaky heart and exited back into civilian society to follow through with his promise. In 1944, David married Jane Miller and the two went on to have a daughter, Linda, later known as Deborah, then two sons, Paul and Jonathan, and finally their fourth child, another daughter, Faith. David had been ministering in rural Arizona, Then, according to his biography page on his website again, he built a new church that he tried to integrate with the local Native and Mexican-American population, with the church board forcing him to resign in 1951 as a result of his actions. However, Peter Wilkinson wrote for Rolling Stone that David was, in fact, kicked out on suspicion of sexual misconduct. Embittered, David spent the next couple of years studying communism and socialism in Phoenix, taking advantage of the GI Bill to do so, but soon returned to religion. Over the following decade and a half, as he continued to minister in various churches and take a series of secular jobs, including a stint as a junior high school teacher, he became further disenchanted with the church's lack of interest in following Christ's instruction to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. His daughter Deborah also claims that he had long been unfaithful to his wife, having sexual relationships with various housekeepers and governesses during this period. By the 1960s, David and his family were undertaking extensive evangelistic travelling, including performing as the Berg family singers. In 1968, they received an invitation from his mother Virginia to come to Huntington Beach, California, where she was ministering. David says that the place at the time was full of dropped-out hippies and surfers, and that he started reaching out to the young people there. By now he'd grown his beard long, Peter Wilkinson describing his look as evoking a crazed Santa. David's message of Jesus without organised religion appealed to this demographic, and as he brought them on board with evangelising, he named the radical youth movement Teens for Christ. Former member Judy told the Rolling Stone journalist that Berg had a completely hypnotic way about him. The Light Club was a local Christian coffee shop where a mission called Teen Challenge was struggling to attract the youth that they were targeting. The Berg family soon started bringing in crowds to hear them sing, and Teen Challenge passed the mission over to Teens for Christ. David taught Bible classes, adapting his language to suit the anti-establishment young followers. He appealed to revolution and focused on the second coming of Jesus, preaching that they were all living in the time of the end. He referred to the outside world as the system. He attracted a number of followers from the Jesus people, who had risen out of the counterculture movement, and also often viewed the church system in a negative light. The death of Virginia Berg in 1968 was a turning point for David, according to Deborah who wrote that his mother was the very last restraining force for morality in his life. According to Investigation Discovery, David predicted a huge earthquake that would destroy California, and in 1969, Teens for Christ headed out on the road away from Huntington Beach. 
The earthquake prophecy may have coincided with a need for David to begin what would become his lifelong run from the authorities, who perceived his work as contributing to delinquency. Either way, the group began spreading their beliefs across the country from their camper vans. A strong focus on the end times was key to their message, and David saw globalisation and moral decadence as signs of its imminence. According to an archive of thefamily.org, the family being the name by which David Berg's movement would later come to be known, and not to be confused with Anne Hamilton Burns' Australian The Family, as featured in the very first episode of this podcast, a New Jersey reporter wrote of Teens for Christ as Moses and the Children of God. When the press took to the name, the group adopted Children of God for itself as well. David became known as Moses David or just Mo. Mary Mahoney, who joined at the age of 16, wrote for Salon, I was trying to find my path in life and I thought this might be it. Here was a group of dedicated Christian young people determined to return to the pure roots of Christianity by living communally and sharing all things. I felt loved and accepted and was welcomed into the fold as a new babe in Christ. She wrote on her own blog, One of the first verses we babes were given to memorise was Matthew 10, 36-37. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. James D. Chancellor wrote in his book, Life in the Family and Oral History of the Children of God. Once Berg had clarified his status as God's unique prophet for the end time, all disciples were called upon to submit fully to his absolute spiritual authority. He left no room for ambiguity at all. Karen Elva Zerby was born on the 31st of July 1946 in Camden, New Jersey. Her father was a Presbyterian minister, and he was strict, not holding back from using a leather belt to discipline his child. The family moved to Tucson, Arizona in 1964, and Karen attended Christian College secretarial training. She came across the Children of God in January 1969 at an evangelical meeting in Phoenix. She was 22 at the time, and became so enamoured with the group that she followed them back to Huntington Beach and then on their further travels, becoming David's secretary, amongst other things. She was less than half his age. Those who joined Children of God were given a new biblical name. Karen was given the name Maria. David and Jane's children were now known as Deborah, Aaron, Hosea and Faithy. The multiple names for people involved in the Children of God can be confusing. I'll be referring to Karen by her birth name, but she'll also be referred to as Maria or Mama Maria in some quotes from former members. Jane was heartbroken when she first found out about her husband's affair with Karen around 1969, even though she'd been putting up with his indiscretions for years. According to Deborah, David knew that he would have to reveal his adultery in a way that would keep his family and close followers on board as they were crucial to his budding movement. In a 19-hour overnight session, he wept and told of how he hadn't wanted the situation, but the Lord had made it so, that he was unworthy to bear such a burden. He had never wanted to hurt anyone, least of all his faithful wife. But the Lord had revealed a prophecy of old church, new church, and Karen was the new church, and Jane was the old church. Thirty years into her marriage with David, after much tearful contemplation, Jane accepted her new position as wife number two. Peter Wilkinson wrote in Rolling Stone that Karen's relationship with David completely changed her. Quote, The sweet young minister's daughter morphed into a mean-spirited schemer bent on manipulating Berg and consolidating her power within the group. 1970 and 1971 were a period of huge growth for the Children of God, who had now set up on a ranch in Texas, and a favourable television segment on their alternate lifestyle shown on NBC brought newcomers from all over the country. By September 1971, they had grown from 150 to 2,000 full-time followers. By the early 1970s, the sexual revolution was well underway 
and free sexuality had a fairly mainstream following. No longer feeling beholden to Jane's judgment, the approach suited David, and in referring to the scriptures he found that he could justify an evolution of the group's views on sex. According to an archive of the family.org website, he wrote a series of letters, quote, in which he expressed that sexuality was a God-ordained, pure and needful wonder of God's creation when practised as God intended. He reached the conclusion that sexuality is not inherently evil in God's eyes and that loving heterosexual relations between consenting adults, even outside of formal marriage, are permissible as long as others immediately affected by these actions are not hurt. Here's David. I practice what I preach, and I preach sex, boys and girls. Hallelujah! While this was a fairly unacceptable view to conservative Christians, it wasn't out of line with many communes of the time. And if the emphasis on no one being hurt was maintained, then perhaps I wouldn't be recording this episode. David's liberal views on sex did not, however, generally extend to male homosexuality. He went on to take on multiple wives following his second marriage to Karen. By 1972, Children of God sources claim that the movement had 130 communities spread across the world. At that stage, at the top of the leadership was the so-called royal family, which consisted of David's closest relatives. When a new member joined, they had to forsake all, which meant leaving their friends and family and giving over all of their worldly belongings to dedicate their lives 24-7 to the group. David based this on Luke 14.33, where Jesus says, Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Eva St. John came across the children of God in Auckland, New Zealand, at the age of 16. She told 60 Minutes, At that stage they were just, quite literally, Jesus' hippies. They just lived in a hippie commune and everybody loved each other and it was all just love and happiness and playing guitars and dancing. She did, however, have to cut off connections with her family and was closely supervised during her early introduction to the group as one of the so-called babes. Again, from her 60 Minutes interview with Sarah Hall, Eva claimed, quote, They used to say, if you think, 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 you'll sink, 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 because you stink, stink, stink. When I was a babe, you'd get assigned a buddy, and you weren't even allowed to go to the toilet without your buddy standing outside the toilet door, quoting verses to you so you wouldn't think, so you wouldn't let the devil get into your mind. And babes weren't even allowed to talk to each other in case they shared their doubts, end quote. This lasted for the first three to six months after joining. Alan Dunetz and John Bottom had been checking out hippie communes in California when they came across the Children of God in 1972 and decided to join. They changed their surname to Phoenix and travelled with the group around South America, eventually having five children, River, Rain, Joaquin, Liberty, Butterfly and Summer. Though by the time Summer was born, they had become disillusioned and left the sect. Joaquin Phoenix told Stephen Dalton for Uncut magazine, They recognised that it was shifting and the ideas behind it wasn't what they wanted, so we left. The awful stuff I've heard about the group in the 80s, that wasn't our experience. We were trying to figure out how to make alternative societies, and a lot of them fell to the same mistakes that our larger society has made, in which people's egos and greed took over. I think that's what happened to that community, but it wasn't the picture people paint. However, there was a group of concerned parents who did not like the picture they were seeing. They formed a committee with the aim of getting their children out of the Children of God, which became known as Free Cog, and began a concerted campaign to spread the word about the issues they perceived with the sect. A well-connected parent brought the movement to the attention of then-Governor of California Ronald Reagan. And on the other side of the country, the Attorney General of New York began investigating the group at the request of Governor Nelson Rockefeller. 
every criticism to come from the system was put down to persecution, and secrecy became crucial to the leadership's operations. In April of 1972, David left for England and wouldn't return to America again in his lifetime. The resulting report from the New York investigation was issued in 1974, and Robert McFarland wrote in a paper for the Journal of Psychohistory that it alleged that they were engaged in kidnapping, imprisonment, virtual enslavement, prostitution, polygamy, rape and sexual abuse of children and incest. But aside from driving the leadership further underground, nothing seemed to come of the report. David communicated with followers through what he called the Mo Letters, of which there would end up being over 3,000 in total over the years. He would either write them or they would be transcribed by Karen or others from speeches. Many followers eagerly awaited the next Mo letter for guidance. Former member Mary Mahoney wrote in her blog, All Mo letters were required reading, surpassing the Bible in importance, and members were to devote at least two hours each day to their study, which they called word time. Berg wrote, If there's a choice between your reading the Bible... I want to tell you you had better read what God said today in preference to what he said 2,000 or 4,000 years ago. When David decided that the Mo letters should be released to the public and not just to followers, he referenced how Mao Zedong's Little Red Book had worked to make him a household name. Followers were now required to litness, that is, witness through distributing as many copies of the literature as they could. Reading through various Children of God texts, there's a lot of underlining and exclamation points throughout, as well as liberal use of ampersands. Mary Mahoney had moved into a communal home, then known as a colony, when she turned 18, against her parents' wishes. She wrote a piece for Salon about her experiences that I recommend reading, check the show notes for a link. And in it she said that they were taught God was just and life was fair, so if something bad happened to you, you should seek out the reason why, write a confession, and pray on it. Quote, The natural extension of this belief in a just world is conspiracy theories, of which COG publications were rife. The Illuminati were pulling the strings of world events behind the scenes, and evil persecutors were always after Berg and us, so we must be constantly vigilant about our security, and he and his top leaders must live in utter secrecy. In September 1974, David's eldest daughter Deborah and her husband Jethro were put in charge of meetings with Russ Griggs and Linda Meissner, leaders in the Jesus People Army. They were looking to join the Children of God, as they could see their numbers were on the rise and thought that they must be doing something right. The impression Deborah was tasked with giving the leaders was different to the reality of the sect's operations, according to her book. Quote, Here I was confronting this real sweet girl and this very sincere guy, trying to get them to merge with us, but all the while they never knew what was going on behind the scenes. By the time we were in Seattle, Dad had taken on some other wives and had endorsed sexual freedom for the leaders of Children of God. The poor Jesus People Army had no idea what was going on. I know that if we had told them the whole story, they never would have joined. That was also the year that David launched the practice of flirty fishing. This was based on the idea of combining evangelism with sex, essentially sending out female Children of God members as, quote, hookers for Jesus, to convert people through seduction, or even where there was no conversion, to portray God's love in a physical way. Initially only utilised by those in the upper levels of the sect, by 1976, after some extended trials on the Canary Islands, the method was expanded for common usage amongst the rest of the membership as well. There are allegations that the method was also used to build contacts within police forces and politics who might prove handy in the future. Deborah wrote that many of the fish weren't interested in forsaking all, and instead of joining full-time, were now allowed to become closet followers. Quote, For every disciple living full-time in a COG colony somewhere in the world today, 
that was in 1984. There are countless others who align themselves to the movement clandestinely, including government officials, wealthy businessmen, and the man on the street. Flirty fishing is one of the most reported-on aspects of the children of God, and is clearly a pretty sensational idea, so it's understandable why it was taken up by the media. But to those within the sect, it was taught as a natural extension of their liberation from the system. Eva St. John said of David's teachings on it to 60 Minutes, He always made it like only the most privileged and the most boldest and the most liberated and the strongest spiritually can do this kind of work. And always, you know, the reverse psychology, so that we were all going, oh wow, maybe one day I'll be able to be that liberated and that spiritual. To her, it was surprising that this element of the sect's practices was so shocking to others because she had grown up thinking of it as a good, compassionate, generous thing to be doing, and that it would pave the way for a great reward in heaven. It takes some cartwheels of the mind to imagine this perspective, but I think we all have elements of society that we consider to be off-base, so it's worth trying to understand how the practice was accepted by members rather than condemning or ridiculing those who took part in it. In thinking about the flirty fishing approach and the sexual freedom amongst members outside of their marriages, there's quite a contrast between children of God and many of the religious cults we've looked at in this podcast. Polygamy is more often present, with men allowed to have multiple wives but women not afforded the same freedom. In children of God, any jealousy around free sexual relationships was frowned upon, but there did tend to be more of an emphasis on women giving of themselves for men's desires and to convert men to the cause than vice versa. Scholar Stephen A. Kent notes that while David Berg referred to his female followers as revolutionary women, he also derided the feminist movement in a number of his letters. Kent noted in his book From Slogans to Mantras that Little doubt exists concerning which sex benefited most from this sort of liberation. The free love approach also blurred lines and hierarchies of allegiance between members, adding to the idea of all belonging to one big family, with David Berg everyone's father. One Mo letter stated, Our wives are not our own. They belong first to the Lord and then to me as their commander-in-chief. Husbands who showed reluctance for their wives becoming involved in flirty fishing were swiftly rebuked. All children were everyone's children, and treating yours differently to anyone else's was a grave misdemeanour. As David wrote in a 1972 letter, If you love your flesh and blood children more than you love God's children of God's family, then you really haven't come to the realisation of what God's family is all about. James Chancellor wrote in his book on the group that one of the reasons behind such obedient devotion to David Berg for members was a genuine faith in selflessness as a means to bring people to Jesus and salvation, according to Susan Rain's discussion paper for Cultic Studies Review in 2006. And in this it might be seen how appealing to the sense of giving of oneself was a core part of the flirty fishing idea. A dedication to genuine selflessness is obviously a really admirable quality, but can also be one easily taken advantage of. As time went on, it became clear that an emphasis on free love and no contraception also fed into the Children of God's membership growth strategy. The leadership travelled all over the world, fairly constantly moving, spreading their message. They also moved the membership around amongst terrifying prophecies of impending nuclear holocaust and more. While out flirty fishing in Tenerife, Karen became pregnant, and nine months later gave birth to a son named David Moses Zerby, on the 25th of January 1975. He became known as Davidito, and David Berg pronounced Davidito as the prince who would one day lead the children of God through the end times. Being a child of David was challenging in a number of ways. And in her book, Deborah wrote of the constant sense of competition between those in the inner circle. In February 1976, she and Jethro were sent to lead Children of God projects in Latin America. Though they had separated by then, they were to keep this from other followers, and Jethro remained in the inner circle, though he'd be coming to Latin America off the back of a recent demotion, quote, 
typical of my father's pattern of political ping-pong, first a promotion, then a demotion, followed by another promotion. Up, down, up, down. It was like being on a roller coaster. By 1977, the Children of God were facing some bad press again, with an article in Time magazine exposing the concept of flirty fishing. Back in Tenerife at the time, a number of flirty fishers were arrested and charged with prostitution, which was illegal in the Canary Islands. David was summoned to court and appeared for questioning twice before absconding once again, leaving his female followers to stand trial without him. Unlike many of the groups we've looked at, Children of God did seem to really care about those less fortunate, and often gave to charity, though of course they would also be trying to convert people to their faith. They considered themselves to be independent of mainstream society, self-supporting, self-governing and self-propagating. They homeschooled their unvaccinated children, and members weren't allowed to hold jobs, so they relied on donations as well as sales of literature, posters and tapes. There were no mainstream books, television, magazines or newspapers allowed for children or adult members. Children were often sent out to sing in the streets to raise a little cash too. Followers were living in communal homes with multiple families and many children to each bedroom, with little money to survive on. School homes for children and adolescents were introduced for the education side of Children of God, and in spite of his emphasis on love elsewhere, David Berg also believed strongly in Spare the Rod and Spoil the Child. Stories of physical abuse in these school homes are numerous. Former member Mary Mahoney wrote on her blog, Coming to Grips with My 30 Years in a Cult, in an entry reflecting on the Mo letters, quote, I worked to the point of nervous breakdown in large school homes filled to the brim with children packed two to a bed in three-tier bunks. How to educate and care for them with basically no money and always shorthanded was my ever-present concern, and we always seemed to be playing catch-up. As if the physical work wasn't enough, like all plebeian members, I lived under the burden of responsibility for writing my sorry spiritual state. I needed to learn submission to God, my leaders, and to my husband, to be a good Bible woman. I was often called in for talks with the leaders, excoriating corrections for my many sins. My mental bandwidth was taken up with marriage problems, children's needs, my own spiritual inadequacies that I needed to conquer, lack of money, and constant work. When the mind is running multiple programs, our mental processes begin to slow down. I didn't have enough time to take care of all the needs before me, let alone think of the future, or give place to the devil by doubting the Mo letters. End quote. Even when she was living in a communal home, with her bed and a number of children's beds positioned around a central double bed, in which a newly paired couple would have unbridled sex every afternoon during the mandatory two hours quiet time after lunch, Mary pushed down her doubts. As she wrote for Salon, Doubting was considered sinful, so if we ever had suspicions about anything in the group, we dared not mention them. David and Karen decided that raising Davidito would be a project closely documented as a lesson to all followers in how to raise a child. With Davidito's nanny Sarah Kelly, they produced The Story of Davidito, known as The Davidito Book, to distribute to all members, and amongst other things, it detailed the young child watching sexual intercourse and orgies, being fondled and playing with his nanny's breasts. He was cared for by various young female nannies who were often topless, and Laurie Goodstein for the New York Times, who cited the book, described its retelling of such practices as having a tone of amusement and delight. There are pages of this book and many other sect texts available on a collaborative encyclopedia of the Children of God and the Family at xfamily.org, and that resource has been instrumental in compiling this episode. There are a lot of analyses that position David Berg's teachings as those of a harmless new religious movement, or NRM, certainly with some unorthodox views, but one that people had every right to follow and bring their children up in. 
Viewing many of the texts with my own eyes has formed my opinions on the group. Examples from the David Edo book include a picture of him naked at 22 months captioned, That come hither look. A note from Mo saying, quote, God made little children able to enjoy sex, so he must have expected them to. I did all my life. Thank God, I love it. And it didn't hurt me any. Nearly all kids do anyhow, despite prohibitions. And the only reason the system frowns on it is that the churches have taught sex is evil, which is contrary to the Bible. How could God-created sexual enjoyment be a sin? The system is really screwed up. God help us. They're the ones not normal. End quote. A story about David Ito thumbing through a playboy to the centrefold, then asking if he could put the picture up by his bed like Daddy does, and, quote, then kissed her nipples and stroked her picture all over. Some of the text is about not shaming children for their natural curiosity about their bodies, which seems quite sensible. But the extensions of this philosophy within the children of God are extreme. They themselves were well aware of this, and also said in the David Edo book, But it must be made very clear to your children that such sexual freedom must never be indulged in or practised openly in the presence of visitors, strangers, or uninitiated relatives and friends who have not been properly re-educated in the revolutionary sexual freedom of natural living. In other words, you will not be able to indulge in such God-given freedoms in the presence of the average systemite or even new disciples or their children or those who have not yet been properly educated in the liberty-loving ways of God's revolutionary naturist. And I firmly recommend that you adults do the same. Do nothing that would cause your weaker brethren or even a stranger to stumble nor offend him or her that is weak like systemites and new disciples. It's worth noting that some of the text does advise caution. Quote, Sex. Now if I share with you some of David Ito's sexy experiences, will you try prayerfully and cautiously to benefit from the lessons learned and follow the Lord's leadings in possibly sharing the same kind of gentle love and fun without stumbling our little sheep? You know, some things have been omitted from this story simply because it is sometimes hard to explain the exact situation in words without you actually being there to experience it with us. Sex is a beautiful, God-given, wonderful part of the life we enjoy together, and we'd love to share it with you as long as you don't use it as an occasion to the flesh, and in some way that could actually harm or confuse the children. It is oftentimes the little ones who suffer through our big people mistakes, end quote. Here some see an argument that harm was never intended to children, but it's not surprising that quite a lot of harm sprung from these child-rearing teachings. If David Edo was the perfect example, he certainly did not grow up into a well-adjusted adult. According to David Edo, Karen had sexual intercourse with him when he was just 12 years old. Davida, the daughter of Sarah Kelly, told Randy Kay for CNN that she witnessed this and that David Berg began sexually abusing her from the age of five. The view of David Berg was that children should grow up with exposure to sex in order for it to become a natural part of their exploration. Stories would later emerge of children having no idea that it wasn't completely normal for parents and other adults to have sex with children, and children to have sex with other children. Peter Fruman told journalist Laurie Goodstein, When I was 11, I had sex with a 28-year-old woman, and it was with the approval of everyone in the room. I found out later that my mum was watching. James Chancellor interviewed over 200 members for his book about the children of God, and the professor of religion told Keith Morrison for Dateline of the sect's attitude. Only the law of love controlled their lives, so whatever was done in love is above the law. Eva St. John described a part of this to 60 Minutes as... The sisters should make themselves available to all the single brothers sexually because that was their service for God, and the single brothers needed sex, and so the sisters' service for God was, if brothers wanted sex, they had to give it to them. And it was called the law of love. Former child member Julia McNeil told Dateline of being sent off by her parents with an adult couple who would sleep with her in their bed, where she would be molested in the night by the man. She was 11 years old at the time. She managed to leave at the age of 19, 
and not knowing how to make her way in a world that she didn't understand, she fell back on prostitution before attempting suicide. By early 1978, the Children of God were facing accusations of financial mismanagement, misconduct and child sexual abuse. In February 1978, David Berg decided that a rebrand was in order, and he renamed the group The Family of Love. He sent a Mo letter that condemned Deborah's partner of four years, Bill, with whom she had had two children after separating from Jethro. Bill was to be relocated to Africa and Deborah to Australia. David sent out further correspondence that was scathing of leaders who had taken exorbitant tithes of 25 to 50%, rather than the 10% of earnings approved to send up to higher leadership, who had overseen members working long hours without being able to fund basic necessities, and who had perpetrated multiple abuses, according to David's summation. As a result, he decided that his so-called democracy wasn't working, and in his Reorganisation Nationalisation Revolution, or RNR, he declared that the family was now a dictatorship. Quote, I couldn't possibly make as many mistakes as you guys are all making put together, so we'll just have a one-man dictatorship. Well, that's God's original plan for his kingdom, an authoritarian, prophetic or kingly reign, so why not? I think it's worth a try. Let's sweep the whole works away. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link, and we had plenty of them, so we'll just have to get rid of it. Sorry. As part of the restructure, he decreed to local leaders that we are even going to change your name to the local colony servant and his handmaiden instead of shepherd and shepherdess to be sure you understand the meaning of your position at this time, since some of you didn't get the point that shepherd meant a loving caretaker of the sheep. The term colonies was out and homes took its place for the family's communal living arrangements. Deborah wrote of the restructure, Within one week, there was no leadership, organisation or semblance of order, only utter chaos and anarchy, both moral and physical. There was a spirit of me first among the disciples. People became like sharks, ravaging one another to stay alive. It may have been encouraging to see David recognise some of the issues and do something drastic to address them, but the move was clearly placing all blame on those below him and also narrowing power into his own hands once again. As the decree stated, Then we can directly supervise your local home straight from the top, primarily directly through letters, with exactly what to do and what not to do. By contrast, the family.org website portrayed this change as follows, quote, The Family of Love era was characterised by much looser supervision of its members and communities, as well as far fewer set standards of conduct. Each community was self-governing and largely autonomous. Deborah and Bill's separation lasted for a number of months, full of heartache, before it became the straw that broke the camel's back and caused them to leave the family. Deborah wrote that she fully intended to die by suicide once she left, and when her brother Aaron was found dead at the bottom of a cliff in Switzerland four months later, she believed he had done what she had come close to doing herself. Quote, I cannot say with absolute certainty that Aaron took his own life, but I lived through the same hell he did. I know firsthand the struggle that can push a person to the brink of self-destruction. By this time, membership had reached around 5,000, and there was an exodus of members as a result of the accusations of the restructure. So David started looking at ways to expand. Flirty fishing was still a core recruitment method, and in spite of a general ban on working regular jobs, some women were encouraged to sign up to escort services in order to roll out their loving for Jesus. According to an archive of the family.org website, quote, Although this sexual liberality expressed in the writings of Father David sent shockwaves through the media and religious institutions around the world, 
Many people, most of whom would never attend church, were reached and won to Christ through this open, humbly honest and intimately human approach to witnessing. FFing proved to be tremendously fruitful and was effectively used as an outreach ministry in the family for close to 10 years. As a result, over 100,000 received God's gift of salvation through Jesus and some chose to live the life of a disciple and missionary. End quote. On the 18th of November 1978, 918 people died at Jonestown in Guyana. The Jim Jones-led mass suicide and murder brought a lot of attention to cult groups, and a lot of unwanted attention to the family. According to the archive of the family.org website, this is what precipitated the reorganisation and nationalisation revolution, but the dates don't line up, as the restructure had already occurred by the time of the Jonestown massacre. Instead, it appeared to precipitate a strategy of leading outsiders to believe that the family had dissolved. Former member Ed Preeb wrote in an account of his experiences that after Jonestown, Berg ordered family members to pretend to disband and to visit their parents to prove that the family wasn't a mind-control cult. David wrote in a July 1979 letter, Sometimes one of the smartest things you can do is make your enemy think he has won. Make him think he has accomplished his purpose. When their target disappears, they've got nothing to shoot at. The game is over, and the enemy feels like, well, we accomplished our purpose. In fact, what they were really aiming to do was fragment into a mobile ministry that embraced many new ways of evangelising, including through music and video production and a radio and television show called Music with Meaning. That endeavour involved member Jeremy Spencer who had left the band Fleetwood Mac to join the Children of God in 1971. The family also produced a comic book-style series called Life with Grandpa, in which David Ito, his half-sister Tetchy, Karen, nannies Angela Smith and Sarah Kelly, Sarah's daughter Davida, and others had illustrated depictions, some of which were drawn by Jeremy Spencer. Each comic was meant to portray a lesson for the children, An example is the chapter Beauty and the Beast, in which the classic fairy tale is told, and then David says to the three children, Well now, before we sleep, let's pray that our two beauties, Mama and Sarah, can win these two beasts, Tom and Len, to the Lord, so that Jesus can turn them into Prince Charming's too. A depiction of flirty fishing follows, with the two women sharing their love with two men, and the two men being saved and forever changed afterwards. David tells the women, stretching the metaphor, Hallelujah, thank you Jesus, God bless you girls, what Prince Charmings you've turned some of these beasts into with just a little beauty of unselfish, sacrificial love and affection. The Living with Grandpa chapter entitled Real Fathers tells the children the story of their flesh fathers and how David is their real father and that this is why their skin colours are different. In this one, David tells Tetchy, Honey, which one is actually the real father? The one who prayed for you and loved you the most and has taken care of you ever since you were a baby and has always been a daddy to you? Or the one who runs off and leaves, which is the real father? This strip also has a pretty explicit depiction of sex where David is explaining to the kids how a penis is like a plough and a woman's womb is like a furrow in which the man plants the seed, where David is the farmer who does all the tending and hard work. He explains further. The system says a woman should only love one man and have babies only with him, but we love to share God's love and blessings with others. This teaching contrasts with Mary Mahoney's experience. She had had a son with the Children of God leader whose family she'd been living with in a secret commune, and all of whom she'd come to love. But when her son was a toddler, quote, The family was abruptly whisked away to live with Berg, and I was left to join the mainstream group, emotionally shattered and never to see my son's father again. In May 1980, David produced a Mo letter entitled The Devil Hates Sex. It contained the following... 
There's nothing in the world at all wrong with sex as long as it is practised in love, whatever it is, or whoever it's with, no matter who, or at what age, or what relative, or in what manner, and you don't hardly dare even say these words in private. If the law ever got a hold of this, they'd try to string me up. They'd probably lynch me before I got to the jail. For teenage girls, there was an expectation of sharing in the form of sex when they were old enough. This is from a letter that a 13-year-old girl wrote to her 16-year-old friend. It's sort of different when you share with someone your own age. You're just having fun and it's easier to relate to each other and open up. But with someone twice your age, you feel funny with them and you take it more seriously. And sometimes when my parents shared or fell in love with someone, I felt like I was deserted and left along with the kids and this really turned me off sharing and sex. So they thought I wasn't quite as free as they were so they decided to break my hang-ups. These words were provided directly to David Berg in a letter from the 16-year-old girl, who said of her own experiences, If a girl goes through it as far as sex, it's probably because she's being pressured into it, not wanting to appear to be a girl who wouldn't, but she just isn't ready for any experience with older brethren or the particular ones in question. Although I've had an experience... I would go through trials if I was pressured into sharing with an older guy. I think it's a shame to have to go through trials when sex should be something beautiful. I write because a sad experience could put some people off the wonderful love shared in the family. May God bless and keep you, Dad. The phrase going through it appears to indicate merely going along rather than being able to participate with enthusiasm. And a girl who wouldn't is something they were taught not to be. David's response to this letter, Praise the Lord. God bless you. Amen. We heartily agree, and real love lasts. He didn't address a single one of the teenager's concerns. Angela Smith, who was in the inner circle as a very close, long-term companion of Karen and David, as well as a sexual partner of David, was described in a 1981 Children of God text by David as follows, and she was referred to as Sue in this publication. Dear Sue, she's so super conscientious and over-conscientious and careful and always afraid she's making a mistake or something and always trying to be so attentive and so careful and trying to do her job overly well, always wondering or worrying if she's not doing it right or something. She's got such an inferiority complex about that and she's so faithful and so diligent and so careful with every detail and takes such good care of us in the work and everything. The description might give you some idea of the type of woman David and Karen liked having around. James Chancellor, who had interviewed her for his book, described her for Dateline as a wonderful person as far as I knew. Former member Don Irwin described Angela to journalist Peter Wilkinson as one of those stupid girls who signed up with the cult and ended up being one of the most dedicated, mindless followers of Berg's inner circle. By 1981, according to a paper by Robert McFarland, the family had over 2,000 homes in 76 countries around the world. Actress Rose McGowan was born into an Italian Children of God commune in 1973, and her mother moved her out of the sect and over to America when her relationship with Rose's father broke down, as he had also exited with another woman. They left around 1983 and Rose McGowan described the Children of God to Ronan Farrow in his The Catch and Kill podcast as an idealistic group of weirdos, but like most groups that start with good intentions, especially with powerful male leaders, it all goes sour, it all goes awry. In 1983, David moved his inner circle to the Philippines. David Ito, who changed his name to Ricky after he left the group, later wrote of this period... During that time, Berg lived in his own little world for the most part. As long as he was able to do his little handyman jobs, rant and rave about the damn blacks and Jews, abuse little girls and not have any challenges to his authority or hear of anything that could be remotely construed as a doubt, he was pretty content. David had been putting forth some incredibly racist views for a number of years, including Holocaust denials. Under pressure from some in his inner circle, he did later reinterpret these and blame them on his mother's teachings, but they'd surely done plenty of damage in the meantime. 
Ricky also wrote about Inner Circle member Sarah Kelly becoming increasingly violent towards himself and his sister Techi. Quote, I don't want to excuse Sarah in any way for all the evil and perverted physical, mental and sexual abuse she is guilty of, but it's important to realise that for the most part, she was only doing what Berg and Maria were telling her to. By far the worst blame for what she did has to be laid at the feet of Berg and Maria. Around this time, Sarah gave birth to her daughter Serena, who was known in the family publications as Mary Dear, and Serena wrote of her early years living with the Berg family. Sexual abuse was rampant in Berg's home, and I grew up exposed to all kinds of sexual situations a two- to five-year-old child should never be privy to. I was frequently abused sexually, physically, and mentally. In December 1983, Manny, also known as Mary Berg, David's 11-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter by his son Aaron, came to live in the Philippines compound. At first she was overwhelmed with adoration and admiration for her grandfather, who she believed was God's prophet. But over the years, as she watched him drink too much, was pressured by him to share with men including her own stepfather, and was then sexually abused by David himself, she started to have doubts. She wrote that... At first they acted merciful and understanding towards me and prompted me to confess more and more. But when I was not able to eradicate these thoughts from my mind, they began to use many different tactics on me to get me to repent. These included public humiliations and spankings and major exorcisms which scared me and caused me to become more irrational, making matters worse. David gave permission for her to be beaten with a rod, slapped around and tied to a bed at night. Ricky described this as six months of torture of the now 14-year-old. Quote, We would often see multiple large black and purple bruises on her body as she was escorted from room to room like a scared, demoralised little prisoner of war. Mary later gave evidence to a judge about this. Quote, Many times they would beat me. They took my head and beat it against the wall and bruised me. I was helpless and knew nothing else. It all felt like torture, and once I fainted, throwing up. They said I was throwing up demons. The exercising terrified me. She was then disowned by David and sent to Macau. Mary was demonised in later publications, including a letter that was entitled False Accusers in the Last Days. Mary's experiences are where I'm going to finish up part one of this episode, as there's still quite a lot to tell. But don't worry, you'll only have to wait a week to hear part two. I want to take a quick moment just to say I hope you all stay safe and can look after yourselves mentally, emotionally and physically over this strange period in time. Across the world, we're all experiencing this together, and I expect things are never going to be quite the same again. If you can, please check in on those who might be struggling. And through the difficulties, I hope you can find a supportive community that isn't a cult. access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon. Patreon.com slash LTASpod. I've currently suspended payments from April 2020 onwards as we face some difficult times across the world, so do feel free to pledge, but no payments will come out until we're on the other side of this pandemic. One-off donations are still available via PayPal. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written by me, Sarah Steele, and researched by Haley Gray and myself. Music was by Joe Gould. Information sources are listed on our website at www.ltaspod.com. A huge source of information for this episode was provided by xfamily.org, a collaboratively edited encyclopedia about the family, international, and children of God. Quote, 
Due to the secrecy that shrouds many of the family's activities, we work together to collate and divulge information. It's an incredible resource, making many primary materials available to the public. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 3 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out some of their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from sport to gaming to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. Hope you can join me next week for the second part of this episode. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.